and welcome to the second in a brand new series of CSF podcasts focusing specifically on psoriatic arthritis. Uh, we'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis and we'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of psoriatic arthritis. But first of all, let me introduce myself and my co-host. I'm Ian McInnes from the University of Glasgow in Scotland and today I'm joined by Peter Nash from Griffith University in Australia. And as always, if you need more information, please head across to the CSF website. It's a treasure trove of useful information, abstracts, slides, summaries, and of course, podcasts. Have a look. Peter, over to you. Thank you very much, Ian, and uh, lovely to be with you to share some thoughts. Today, we're covering in this discussion a wide range of topics from imaging characteristics of heel enthesitis in the uh, spondylarthropathies to the real world effectiveness of use to kinemab and TNFs from the PSA bio study in the Europe and the efficacy and safety of Decru or Ducravacitinib. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting that Ducravacitinib, but it's a TIC2 inhibitor, um, uh, if you like JAK4 really, in patients with active PSA. So our first paper highlights the investigation of really a very common and difficult clinical problem, and that is chronic Achilles tendinopathy, and whether secukinumab, one of the IL-17 inhibitors, is capable of improving treating that particular problem. Now, heel lymphocytis is quite tricky, and MRI characteristics in this particular study, they had analyzed it using SAMRAS, this particular study, is a post hoc analysis using a new OMERACT um, validated measure using MRI called HEMRIS. And they reanalyzed the entire study and they were trying to see if secukinumab or placebo could actually improve um, chronic uh, enthesitis of the Achilles tendon. These patients had three years of chronic heel pain. Some of them had active disease, active um, along AXPAR or PSA lines. Um, and there's some in the paper, which you'll find in Arthritis and Therapy, I think it is. No, Arthritis Research and Therapy, recently published. Xenophon Barolikos was the first author. They have some nice pictures of how this particular hemorrhage analyzes enthesitis. Ian, we've always found enthesitis very difficult clinically. Um, and using our imaging to try and confirm the diagnosis. Sometimes the imaging shows a lot of inflammation, but there's no pain. Other times there's a lot of pain, but the imaging is all negative. So ultrasound has proven difficult. Even MRI has proven difficult. It can be a real uh, issue. Um, so <clears throat> when they looked at this, and if you look at the paper, because the slides that will be available, they included 40% of patients who had retrocalcaneal bursitis. Now, to me, that is a very different situation. That's a different clinical issue. It's not your typical enthesitis inflammation of the attachment of the Achilles tendon. And we often inject that very carefully under ultrasound control into the bursa itself because we avoid injecting the tendon for fear of rupture. And they include in this MRI uh, examination the, the last two centimetres of Achilles tendon. They, they show that MRI is the only modality that can show bone marrow edema and active change in bone. 
but it's always a difficult clinical situation how much of the symptoms are coming from myxoid degeneration inside the tendon and how much is enthesitis at the attachment. So these, this um, MRI modality has looked at intratendon inflammatory signal, which was present in half the patients, peritendon inflammation present in almost 40%, bursitis, which I really think they shouldn't have included, 40%, and bone marrow edema in about one in three. And they included a look at plantar fasciitis as well, but really clinically we can separate those two. And I, and I don't think that um, they really should have mixed those two together, but it can be a chronic problem. And if it works for one, hopefully it'll work for the other. So the diagnosis was always challenging. They looked at um, two doses of sekikinumab, 150 and 300, the standard doses that we use clinically. In fact, we never use 150 because there's no safety signal difference and the efficacy is improved and our flat pricing allows us to do that. Uh, and unfortunately, they were, un they were show um, some numerical differences against placebo, but not enough to reach statistical significance. Um, so I'm a little bit disappointed in the outcome. I would have expected um, a significant result with this modality, as we've seen in their studies, they had quite significant improvements in enthesitis using the Leeds Enthesitis Index or using the Spark Index. But um, I've got a feeling that they mixed a few patients in that made their result difficult to achieve. And so we just have to take this as hypothesis generating and it may be a viable option if you have very difficult patients who have chronic symptoms where you do imaging and you show evidence of enthesitis at the attachment and not an intratendon problem and uh, uh, not a bursitis problem. What do you think, Ian? Yeah, I, I, I've not much to add to your thoughts about this paper. It, as ever, there's a new outcome measure so we're thinking about how well does it behave? Yes, it's validated, of course, but, but outcome measures need to be tested in the real world. And I think that's, to be fair to Zenithlon and his team, that's what they were doing here. They were going in and saying, look, we've got this, we've got this measure. Uh, we really do need to move to objective away from subjective imaging modalities that are gonna support the way in which we use uh, particularly uh, medicines in the treatment of enthesitis. And I'm with you here. This was a difficult to treat population. It's a post hoc analysis. I do agree with what you have to say about drug dose. I think 300 milligrams is the dose for sekikinumab. And, uh, you know, going forward, am I going to do an MRI every time to measure the outcome? I suspect not yet on the basis of this study. Uh, a, it's expensive, and B, if the patient's better, great. If they're not better, then yeah, I might go back and think again about what the problem is. But um, yeah, we'll see. What I like about this, on the other hand, is that you know it's the, it's the application of formal imaging and, and uh, quantitative analysis to really try and move, particularly the enthesis, the enthesitis field from uh, from soft tissue into really to, to hard outcome medicine. And just a final thought: um, I was really intrigued by the within tendon lesions that were described in this study. Uh, as I think you know, Peter, I've been really interested in primary tendinopathy uh, without a priori involvement of the enthesis. And I, I think uh, I think this is it's indicative of a 
of really a, quite, quite a new look at the way in which human tendon disease and enthesitis really play out. So I think this is, this is one to watch for the future, Peter. Um, but as ever, uh, a very carefully performed study by, by Xenophon and, and his colleagues. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's scratching the surface. And I agree with you about MRI. We tend to just use ultrasound because yeah. we want to see is it a myxoid degeneration, is it a bursitis or is it an enthesitis? So that's fine. Well, the other thing I'm always worried about, I mean, my very esteemed colleague, Professor Stefan Siebert, uh, and Professor Neil Miller uh, over here in Glasgow, they actually run combined clinic. So they actually see patients with combined enthesitis and tendon disease. And you know, one of the things I always worry about, particularly persistent disease, Peter, if the rest of the disease is quiet, just make sure there isn't actually a tendon tear or some other mechanical issue in there. There's, you know, we, we can get into a little diagnostic conundra here if we're not careful. So as ever, clinical medicine to the fore, examine the patient, use imaging to help characterize the, the, the consequences of that examination. But uh, yeah. So look, shall we go ahead and Peter, um, we, we had another paper, I think you mentioned ustekinumab and TNF inhibition. Yep. Do, do you want to talk a little yep. bit about the, the study? And then I'm going to wax lyrical here. This is one of my favorite topics, uh, comparisons <laughs> across biologies. So why, why, don't, why don't you introduce the paper and then we can talk a bit about it? All right. Well, this, this paper comes from Annals of Rheumatic Diseases. Laura Gosek is the first author. They're a good group. Kurt DeVlam, Stefan Siebert, a good group. Joseph Smolin. And they looked at a um, a prospective observational study they have going called the PSA bio study. And they looked at real world evidence using persistence on drug as a surrogate for still doing well, not getting side effects and staying on treatment as a way of measuring efficacy in people with all the comorbidities that you and I have to treat every day, all the co-medications that you and I have to treat every day. And they tried to compare use to kinemab um, and the TNF inhibitors in this patient population using uh, that persistence as the outcome. Now, we don't use a lot of use to kinemab in PSA, mainly because we have so many other choices and the dose we're restricted to at 45 milligrams, I think, is a little low to what would have been ideal. But what's as striking about UST and the 23s and 70 is their safety profile. Now, we all know and love TNFs, and we've been using them for 20 years. But even this paper, as we'll come to, shows a difference, similar efficacy, really, but subtly different and an important safety difference. The derms love this drug. They see the patient every three months, they give them an injection, they don't have to monitor much, they don't have to worry about safety much, and it's quite good for skin. So <clears throat> the study design, it's observational, it's multinational, and they use the usual outcome measures that we use in PSA metrics, a one-year analysis, they use the DAPSA and the C-DAPSA, which leaves the CRP out. And they compared DAPSA remission, DAPSA low dose activity, and they used MDA and very low disease activity as well as the PSAID, which looks much more at the patient reported outcomes. And of course, safety as well. And persistence and safety were the two things that they looked at. These patients um, were quite large, 28 BMIs, Maybe not as large as the American studies, but getting up there. And they had and they had six to seven years of disease. A number of them 
had this was third line BDMARD therapy, 20%. So this is a difficult patient population because they'd uh, had failed other biologics. Um, steroid use, 30%, which is high for a PSA study, Absolutely. and just reflects just reflects this is a tough patient population. They obviously needed something like that. They had lots of comorbidities, mainly metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, depression in six to 9%. And I really think we underestimate the depression and we don't even tackle it in this patient population where we've even seen one drug, bradalumab, withdrawn because of suicide, depression, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing that, um, take-home messages, we should start considering that a bit more carefully. They looked at over a 1,000 patients, or sorry, 991 patients, over about three years, around Europe, UK mainly. Um, and they, um, the demographics, these people had the kind of skin disease that we're used to seeing in PSA studies. You know, a third of them was almost clear skin. And the, the criticism of DAPSA is that it doesn't look at skin, it doesn't look at nails, it doesn't look at emphysitis. It's mainly a joint count measure, whereas the MDA is a clinical state to try and achieve, which does include some of these other measures. They, they had six swollen joints. That's, that's quite different to the studies that we used to do at the past then. Yeah. And, um, and about half had emphysitis, about 20% had dactylitis, and their hacks are around the 1.2. So getting up there as far as bad function is concerned. And the bottom line, they had some axial they looked at, but this was um, clinician diagnosed, not image proven, which is often the case in these studies. They looked at monotherapy and they showed that the monotherapy efficacy of UST was better than TNF monotherapy. And when they looked at the disease outcomes at a year, um, the adjusted odds ratio difference was about 0.8 for low disease activity, DAPSA, and 0.7. But really, it, it was a difference of 56% to, to 67% um, low disease activity. About 22% of UST got into DAPSA remission, 32% of TNF got into DAPSA remission. So you might say, for UST, you have to treat five patients to get one DAPSA remission. With TNFs, you have to treat three in a bit to get into DAPSA remission. And the MDA numbers were a little bit less, but that's okay. But the safety was, in, was important because we take on the risk on behalf of our patients and the TNFs, the number needed to harm for one SAE was 20 with UST, the number needed to harm to get one SAE was 33. Now, <coughs> if, if you think about that, in our group of seven rheumatologists, we have over 4,000 patients on biologics, most of them, maybe half on a TNF. If I'm putting one, you tweak 20 rheumatoids and 20 PSAs for a year, put one in hospital, multiply that by big numbers, and suddenly we're putting people in hospital once a week. And the general physicians go, what are you guys doing over there to these patients? They come in with sore hands and a rash and you're putting them in intensive care but with sepsis. So 
I'm just saying that safety should not be underestimated. Everyone is very risk averse. There is a difference that they're showing, even in this particular study, um, efficacy and persistence on drug, hard to separate the number, but numerically slightly different. Safety, particularly SAEs, I think is important. And the patient reported outcomes were very similar in the benefit of the two drugs. So real world study, comparable persistence and efficacy. They say comparable safety, but I have a slightly different take over a year. And it surprised me that UST did as well as it did. What That's do you think? Well, I, I've heard people say that a lot. Um, so first of all, the kind of conflict of interest, I, 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 was, I was pretty involved in the early Ustakinumab studies. And if you go back and look at the phase three trials, pretty much what you're seeing here is what we probably would have predicted to see. But Ustakinumab uh, has tended to be used further down the line in terms of the order of therapy. And as you pointed out, it's tended to be used at a dose that's just a little low. And when you start to think, I, I couldn't agree with you more about this issue of efficacy and safety. You know, patients will often say, does the medicine work? Yeah. But they will always say, because they kind of make an assumption if you're giving a medicine, it's going to work. You know, that's, that, that, there's a bit of trust in there between the doctor and the patient. But the question they're really worried about is, and what are the side effects? What do I need to look out for? What, what could be potentially worse than the disease I already have? So I think your remarks about the, the value of that safety efficacy window uh, are really well taken. And anustakinumab is a well-tolerated option. And, you know, if you've got that patient perhaps with a little less uh, severe uh, musculoskeletal but quite significant skin involvement, as you say, there's a reason the dermatologists like this medicine, and that's because it actually works. And is, if you're a responder, of course, if you're a responder, those responses we know from the dermatology literature are quite robust and quite uh, quite uh, well-maintained. So I, I, you gave such a beautiful discussion here. I, I don't have much more to add than that, Peter, truth be told. And I, I don't know if this will hugely influence the order of prescribing decisions. I think we're we're ten now to be to be guided very much by by the recommendations and guidelines from ULAR, from GRAPA, from the American College. But uh, what I would say finally is that whether it's in the real world or in the clinical trial context, head-to-head -head comparative data are really, really important. Otherwise, we're going to have to rely on studies that both you and I have done, which are really derivations of the health economic literature where you're making indirect comparisons. And that, I must say, always feels pretty uncomfortable. But look, we're, we're, we're moving on here, Peter. I, let, let, me, let me try one out on you here. I, I want to talk about the, um, the paper that, that Philip Meese put into Annals. And it, it, it concerns the efficacy and safety of a drug called Ducravacitinib. So we're all going to need a bit of speech therapy to help us uh, pronounce <laughs> these drugs safely, aren't we? This is a phase two trial. Yeah. A couple, couple of things that's important to say right from the outset. Early days, you know, we're not, we, we need to know more about this medicine. Um, you, you, I loved what you said earlier on. You said Jack 4. So let me just char characterize that a bit more for our, for our, our, our listeners and watchers. So there's JAK1, JAK2, and JAK3, which you're all very familiar with because of the you know, expansion of the JAK inhibitor class. And there's actually a fourth member of the family, but it was discovered in a different context, and it was called TIC2. So it's a little bit like the long-lost fourth member of the family 
who was adopted at birth. And then finally, later on in life, they discovered that they were all related to each other. So tick two is the name. It's stuck, but it's really a, it's very, uh, very similar to the other Jacks. And therefore, Jack four would have been a more helpful name for us clinicians who like things to be simple and clear. Ducravacitinib is an interesting medicine. It, it, it's, um, it, it binds to the regulatory um, pseudokinase domain of tick two. Why, why would you care about that? Because what it does is actually it locks the enzyme into inactivity. And that's different from direct kinase inhibition. And that may or may not have some, uh, some implications for the longevity of effect that we can see. But look, let's cut to the chase. What happened? Phase two trial, um, uh, the, 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 this was placebo controlled, two doses of ducravacitinib. Bottom line, ACR20 responses uh, for ducravacitinib, six milligrams were around 53%. For 12 milligrams, 63%. And placebo, 32%. All of these measured at week 16. And that's all you need to know. This drug in phase two outperformed placebo. And it does look like there's a bit of a dose response. There's some work to be done, I think, by the investigators to work out what the right dose is. And of course, the other key thing that I, I, I want to highlight for you, safety. Uh, there, there were uh, higher numbers of adverse events in the active dose arms as compared with placebo. And things that were reported here, nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory tract infection, sinusitis, bronchitis, rash, diarrhea, headaches. Still a little uncertain how much of that's going to be tick two uh, related, how much of that is potentially off target. You know, anyone who says any drug is purely on target, yeah, sure. But I have to say this drug's at the moment behaving pretty well. It's doing really quite nicely in the psoriasis, uh, pure psoriasis literature. We'll see how it, 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 it makes it in, in phase three in PSA going forward. And the other thing, I guess, just before I I hand back to you, Peter, because I'm interested in your view and where this might fit in therapy. Uh, there were no significant laboratory changes, although, again, this is still early days. And I think we need to, to take a look uh, in the longer term at our patients. But potentially, uh, Peter, in future, uh, an, an oral cytokine receptor inhibitor. Would you use a medicine like this, assuming the data breed true and, and this medicine does prove to be safe and, and uh, efficacious? Sure, and I think you you raise an interesting point. This is a covalent bond that must be uh, um, complete, not the reversible ATP uh, inhibition that we're used to, which sort of means that you're not going to block that enzyme for 24 hours of the dosing period. And, and that's why I was interested in this phase two study, because have they reached their top safe dose just with the two they've got? There's a nice dose response. They're getting at 12 milligrams, 60, 30, 20 kind of response. Often in phase two, you see an, an, you know, an exaggerated response that comes back to uh, reality with the phase three studies. Yeah, regression to of the truth. Regression to the truth is what my <laughs> statistical friend is called call that. Yeah. yeah, and the, you know, the PASI 75 is 60%, so that's a little underwhelming. We're so used to now getting PASI 100 of half the patients with these 17s and 23s. So it's kind of like a TNF skin response, a TNF joint response. It works nicely for enthesitis and dactylitis, the other domains that we have to take into consideration. We're getting, they're getting about 24%, 22% in MDA, which is just a little down on the 30% that you normally see. So, and the safety 
you know, you want to know, does this have the baggage that the Jacks have or not? And, you know, studying a couple of hundred people for 16 weeks, you're not going to see much. So early days for that. So I think this is kind of like a oral TNF response, a little bit stronger than a premolast and methotrexate, but not quite as strong as the 17s to 23s. So I think it does have a role. I think it'll fit nicely if it was an expensive drug, which of course it will be. In our country, you have to have failed two conventional synthetics, if you like oral small molecules, before you get to a biologic. Wouldn't it be nice to have to fail methotrexate to crevacitinib before you went to the you know, more expensive drugs or something along those lines? So I think it'll fit in that middle group, skin not too severe, joints what you'd expect, um, safety needs to be panned out over time in bigger numbers. But I think it, it is an advance. It's looking at different mechanisms of action. And they're telling me now they're already studying combinations. Jack 1, tick 2 inhibition. Interesting. They're already com combining it with other um, medications, BTK plus tick 2 So I just think that it's early days, as you said, and we will be using this drug. The derms already, I think, in America using it. Interesting, isn't it? Because these are already, each of these individual kinase inhibitors is already a combination cytokine inhibitor. So combining combinations, interesting. Peter, I, I could chat with you all day, but sadly our <laughs> listeners would probably all lose the will to live uh, listening to, to me rabbiting on as well. I'm going to suggest we bring this podcast to a conclusion. I, I, I've loved it. I, I, I always learn something when I talk with you, Peter. I, I always, I really appreciate it. And I know that our listeners and watchers will have found exactly the same thing. And um, if you, uh, if you enjoy this, please don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast from. So uh, generally in my case, it's from my kids. I don't really know how these things work. So, so good luck to you in that. So, so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you want to read more about what we've discussed today, head over to the cytokinesignaling.com. Uh, where you're going to find detailed summary slides of each of the papers and abstracts, and of course, the chance to listen to this all over again. Peter, an absolute joy and a pleasure as ever. And to all of you, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk again. Bye for now. Thanks a lot, Ian. Bye, everyone.